Hey, welcome back to Transform Your Workplace. It's your host, Brandon Laws here. Today's episode is brought to you by Zenium HR and The Escape Game. Today's guest for this episode is Carolyn Taylor. She's the author of the brand new book, Accountability at Work, How to Make and Keep Promises and Have Others Do the Same. She's also the author of the book, Walking the Talk, Building a Culture for Success. Uh, So in this discussion, we're talking all about accountability with one another. So I always, I love the, the topic of personal accountability, but this brings it to the workplace where you get to actually hold others accountable. And you make promises, you keep them, you check in, you make sure that you do what you say you're going to do and you hold others accountable to those promises that they're making. So there's a lot of things and that we're talking about in this episode with like roles and how do you check in and just all the logistics around making and keeping promises and who needs to be a part of that. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. I think if you follow through on, on accountability to one another, you're going to have a great culture. You're going to get a lot done. People will be happier, more engaged, all those things. So it's uh, truly a component to transforming the workplace, I believe. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Instagram, any of those places, and make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a written and a review, five-star rating. Any of those things would be fantastic. Enjoy today's episode with Carolyn Taylor. We'll talk to you next week. Welcome to Transform Your Workplace podcast. It's so great to have you on. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks very much, Brandon, for having me. We're talking about one of my favorite topics, uh, accountability. You wrote a new book called Accountability at Work, How to Make and Keep Promises and Have Others Do the Same. By the time this releases, I think it'll be out. But I wanted to just ask you, because you wrote an entire book on accountability, what does it mean to you? Where does it hold a a special place in your heart to write an entire book about accountability? Well, that's a great question. I think it's been always in my life one of my values. Uh, If I think back even to my father, he used to talk uh, in those days uh, about men of honor. I mean, we would Mm. say people of honor now, but that concept that, you know, somebody whose word is their bond was something that was really strong in my family. And this whole book is actually based around that idea that accountability at its heart is a promise between two people. And, you know, when kept, you build that reputation of being someone whose word is their bond. And I kind of really like that idea. So I think that's what it meant for me personally. I've tried to do it in my life, and it's always been something that's important to me. So when I watch organizations and work with different organizations in my consulting role and see people being careless, let me put it that way, being careless with their word and being careless with the way that they make requests of each other. And I'm going, okay, I think there's an opportunity here. And so that's how it started. (laughs) One of my favorite books that I read, I don't know, it's probably been five or so years ago was QBQ, the question behind the question. It was more about self-accountability. And so when you're talking about accountability as a promise at its core, you're talking about between two people, not necessarily like accountability with yourself. 
Yes, I am. And that's one of the distinctions I make. And if you have any listeners who speak any of the Latin languages, like Spanish or French or Portuguese, in those languages, there's actually only one word, which is actually responsibility. Whereas in English, there are these two words, accountability and responsibility. And I've kind of built on that idea because I think there are two ideas. One of the basic premises is that you can only be accountable. You can't be accountable alone. You are accountable to someone else who is holding you to account. Now, in the way you're describing it, yes, you could hold yourself to account in effect. (laughs) And that would then break the premise that I'm putting up in the book. But as a general principle, I think that's one of the places that that people sometimes miss out, that actually there are two roles, which in the book I call the role of the asker who wants something and the role of the giver who is in a position to give them that thing or to have to deliver that thing. And actually both roles have a part to play in whether or not the ultimate delivery is fulfilled. And I will often hear leaders complaining about the fact that their people are not delivering or that there's no sense of urgency in their people. And I kind of look at them and go, well, I think a part of that is because of the way you are or are not holding them to account. Whereas they would be seeing it that, you know, it's easy to blame the other person, right? And and similarly, you know, a lot of us feel like we are obliged to do certain things in work. So we don't necessarily ever feel that we really give a heartfelt, you know, I look you in the eye, Brandon, you can count on me, I will deliver this. So I'm playing also with the concept of you can count on me, can you count on me, and the word accountability, which actually, if you look it up in the dictionary, does say to be asked to give an account of. So it is a relationship between two people. Yeah, so those relationships and those roles, the asker and the giver, is it always between two people or could it be, so if I'm an individual asking an organization, whether it's my employer or somebody I want to purchase something from, making a promise, could it be between a group and an individual or is it always two individuals? Uh, Well, I think that becomes an interesting, I mean, at its heart, I think the place to start is to think of it as between two individuals. Now, obviously, you know, if I make a request of Amazon, for example, in a sense, the institution is making that commitment to me. There's an implied promise in that. And therefore, that then does become between me and the institution. As soon as you have an individual involved, I think it becomes more powerful because ideally, I think what evokes my sense of responsibility is when I feel that it was my word. And in fact, one of the dangers, I think, that leaders often have with their teams is that they will ask a whole team to do something. And yet a lot of the research about, you know, what causes people to act is when I feel like I gave you my word. So even in the context of the team, one of the things that I will often do in the role that I play as a consultant is watch people, observe meetings. So you observe and you see a, the team leader at the end of the meeting saying, okay, so, so everyone will get on and do that now, right? Or, you know, but there's no specific ask. And so implicit is the leader goes away saying, like, okay, so I've asked everyone to do this. And then nobody actually comes nobody back owns and feels it. like, yeah, no one owns it. So you're right in your question because there are absolutely exceptions where it really is an an ask of a team or a commitment made on behalf of a whole organization. But the more personal it gets, the more likely it is to happen, would be my experience. Yeah, and so since it's a personal kind of one-to-one relationship, what needs to go into that relationship before, you know, the asker could really 
ask the giver for a promise. I mean, that's a very intimate, trustworthy based ask, you know, like, I think there's got to be something there to enhance the relationship before it can get there, right? Yes, uh, you're, again, put your finger on something there, because the some of the research we've done has shown that there is a strong link between accountability in the way that I'm describing it in this book, and in fact, psychological safety, and feeling that there is a feeling of trust between us. And that takes time to build. And so what will tend to happen is where trust doesn't exist, that often the asker ends up just telling, because that's the easiest thing to do. The least intimate, the least engaging way is just for me to tell you that you are going to do this. And then the giver will often end just going, saying just, yes, okay, because the least confronting thing for me to say in the face of someone who's telling me is, yes, I'll do it, because the reality is that you need to have a much more engaging and sometimes difficult conversation about it, and that's what will often be avoided. So it can be avoided in lots of different ways, but askers will tend to avoid by either telling or being vague. Givers will tend to avoid by saying yes or you know saying the kind of, yeah, I'll get onto that, and um, yeah, sure, you, you know, you know, those kind of nice vague comments that we will tend to make. Whereas, in fact, if you think about it, is that there's always going to be a bit of a tension between these two roles. So, an asker, whether they are a customer or a colleague across the organisation, you know, where you're asking one of your peers in another business unit or another department, or the boss subordinate relationship, the asker tends to want a little bit more. You know, so I want it quicker, I want it cheaper, I want more volume, you know, depending on what the ask is, right? <laughs> They're always going to push it a little bit. The giver, on the other hand, will tend to be worried that they're not going to be able to do it. So they will, if given a free choice, will be wanting to have more time, go for a less stretching goal. Not everyone, but many people, because the giver's got lots of other priorities and there are lots of reasons and lots of things that could go wrong. And so therefore, let me play it safe. And so inherent in the relationship is attention. And that's right and proper that there should be, because those are the two roles playing out. But what happens is because people don't like tension and they're uncomfortable with those sort of difficult conversations, and as you say, the trust isn't always there. What happens is then that the quality of that conversation that happens in the book, I call it before the promise, so all the front end of the contract mm -hmm. is often not, there's very little time dedicated to that. And so what happens is that you never get to that ideal, which is where the giver, where the asker gets what they're looking for and the giver feels that it was my word, it's my commitment, it's not that right. you were making me do it. So that's the kind of dream state we're aiming for, is that we can get the two parties to reach that point of equilibrium, but that requires conversation. So my premise is that if you put effort into that conversation, and obviously the amount of effort depends on the size and the importance of what you're asking for, I was with a colleague earlier on today and she's asking me, you know, I'm saying, well, you know, so we need to get this proposal out by Friday. Can you do that? And she'll say, yeah, um, that would be the simple thing to say, as opposed to what she's now saying, which is, do you mean Friday morning or Friday night? 
So just that little question Clarity, makes me go, oh, okay, what do I mean? So I'll go Friday morning, of course, and she'll go, well, actually, that's going to be tough. How about, could you write to the client and say, you know, can we get it by the end of business? And I'm going, yeah, okay, fair enough. So, I mean, that took two minutes and it was the right level of interaction given the size of the promise. But nevertheless, the end result is going to be that the client will be happy, she's happy, I'm happy because we had it. Now, if you're talking about what is going to be my $50 million budget this year, then obviously those conversations <laughs> yeah. should be more intense and more thorough, but often are not. What I like about that example you just gave about your colleague was that there was a back and forth dialogue and then you came to an agreement. So there was a promise made versus in the book, you make a very interesting distinction. This is actually one of the most powerful things that I, I found in the book was intention versus a promise. And it's because what happened if you said, can you get me that report by Friday? And she just said, yeah, okay. And it was like, she intended to do it, but there was never like a specific promise in play. So talk about the distinction between intention and promise. I love I loved that piece. Yes, because in that instance, of course, something else will then come in of course. with a higher priority in her life. And because she doesn't really feel on the hook, it then becomes easier to not do it. So the, intention, the difference between promise and intention was one of the big insights because one of the big major experiences I had early on as I was developing the content for this book was working with a team who had consistently underperformed for like five years in a row. So they kept on putting in forecasts, not hitting them, you know, over and over and over again. And we went through all this content and they ended up turning around. And six months later, they were like the best performing region in the business. And it was, it was a wonderful success story. But the question that turned them around was, you know, we looked at the numbers that they had for this year. And the question that I asked was, is that a promise or an intention? And more specifically, what, what level of confidence do you have that you're going to deliver this? And we got all of them to write it on a piece of paper, you know, and you know, someone would put 60% or 50% or 70%. Now, of course, the people in head office were assuming it was 100%. And even the leader was probably assuming it was 90%. But by getting that out, what we realized was that, and that was when we kind of got into that language, that it, it was an intention. Now, an intention can be a very noble thing. It's not, I'm not saying intentions are bad. There are many occasions where intention is the best that you can hope for. But the key is to know that it's an intention. Because then the follow-up question is what would it take to turn that intention into a promise? Mm. And that's where it gets rich. And in the case of this group, um, what we discovered was that they intended to say yes because they wanted to please people. And so they were continually, I mean, they were just highly optimistic. And there was an element of what I think in the book I call luck, chance, or magic in that, you know, there's something amazing was going to have to happen that would actually deliver them. And they tended to be on the optimistic end and therefore assume that something amazing was going to happen. And guess what? Most years, of course, it didn't. And so then they got caught. So then when you ask that follow-up question, then what it then goes to is, okay, so what would it take? To make us to, to increase your confidence, so you felt like you could really, really look someone in the eye and say you can count on me. And of course, what came out then was all the risks, all the things that they saw as risks. And so, one of the key skills for somebody who really wants to build a reputation of being someone who always delivers 
on their promise, which is what this book is about, is risk anticipation and risk mitigation. And when I say risk, I'm talking about anything that can go wrong. So let's be, let, let's have any sophisticated definition of risk that's put together by, you know, the sort of sophisticated end of town on risk. I'm just simply saying what could happen that would cause this promise to be broken. And then people list things, you know, we'll get, well, whatever, head office will suddenly come through with another demand that we've got to do, or a customer you know, will change a deadline and that, you know, takes priority, or, you know, I was expecting a delivery on something or other and it didn't come, or, you know, whatever, the computer system breaks, or, you know, there's a million reasons why, that you know, genuine things that could happen. Yeah. And then what you can then do is to start say, okay, can we develop a plan B? Can we can we mitigate against those risks and plan for the possibility that they might happen? So what sounds like a very simple question on your part about promise and intention becomes a whole process of how do I turn intentions into promises? What would it take? And as a team, are we clear about what we're talking about here? So I do like to emphasize that sometimes the intention is the best that you can hope for at this point. Mm-hmm. But the key is for everybody to know that it's an intention and for you to be courageous enough to feel that you can raise that. And, of course, that goes back to our previous comment about trust and safety and feeling that I can speak up. I mean, we've worked with clients who are in the area of safety, not psychological safety, but real safety safety and actual safety. And one of the key elements of actual safety is the ability to observe what they call near misses, right? Which is something where somebody wasn't injured, but if you examine the problem, it was somewhat lucky that they weren't and they could easily have been that way. So you have to be able to talk about near misses if you're going to have any chance of increasing safety. Well, you only talk about near misses if people feel comfortable about talking about the risks, because that's what a near miss is, right? It's you identifying risks in the business. That's what any safety organization or safety orientated organization is focusing on understanding risk. So what I like about this idea is it starts simple, but when you start expanding it, it's actually got a lot in it. Hey, it's Brandon here with a quick sponsorship break. This year has been incredibly challenging to find effective ways to engage and strengthen your team, especially when most people are working remotely. That's why I can't wait to tell you about my latest find, the escape game. The Escape Game is the top escape room company in the U.S. with 20 locations, and now they're offering an amazing remote adventures for companies and teams of any size anywhere in the world. In fact, last week, my team, the sales and marketing team, we did a remote adventures from the Escape Game, and we had a blast. I actually wasn't sure what to expect, but it's really fun for anybody no matter the experience level. I've done an in-person escape room and this virtual one was just as fun. Here's how it works. Everybody logs into a Zoom meeting. You're met by your host in the game guide. The host gives you clues and instructions while the game guide will be in the escape room with a live video feed. They act as your eyes and your ears, your hands and your feet. So you can ask them to pick up stuff, look under the desk, look through a drawer, anything like that. You have to work with your team to escape in under 60 minutes. My team, we got out with eight minutes to spare. So we had an absolute blast. I thought our communication was fantastic. 
we worked together and were so engaged. And I think by the time we all left, we were just so excited that we actually completed the task together. So I think your team, if you're going to book team building event, I want you to book the escape game for your next team building activity. And right now, my listeners of Transform Your Workplace can get 10% off a game, but only when you go to theescapegame.com forward slash podcast. So don't wait. That's theescapegame.com forward slash podcast. Theescapegame.com forward slash podcast. Now back to the show. What comes to mind for me is if you make a promise and you deliver on that promise, you gain trust. Conversely, if you don't deliver on that promise, you erode trust. So my question to you is, as many individuals working within an organization, you know, if we just didn't make promises, we'll never let anybody down, right? I was never accountable in the first place. Yes. That's a good situation, isn't it? So maybe dive into that and why that's yeah. a good idea. Well, I mean, we can dive into it at the individual level and also we might touch for a moment on the culture because, you know, the culture of an organization actually is created by what is tolerated. And so if you're living in an organization where that sort of behavior, never making a promise so that you never break it, is actually tolerated, then that will become the pattern of behavior that will be dominant and you may very well end up becoming like that yourself even though previously you weren't. There's a cultural answer to your question, but at a personal level, the challenge there is that another way that you get to build a reputation is by somebody who will take on challenging tasks and deliver. So you're weighing up in a way, and that's the skill of the giver, is if you overpromise, you damage your reputation. But if you're safe, you also damage your reputation. And so what I've tried to do in this book is to help givers, which means all of us, okay, those of us who are delivering something to someone else, because everyone does that in every role, however senior you are, to hit the sweet spot. Because the sweet spot is how, how far can I stretch and still have enough confidence in myself that I can anticipate the risks negotiate the interdependencies, which is another big topic. How do I, you know, how do I make sure that the people I'm dependent on will deliver to me so that I can deliver to you? And how do I get better at that so that then I can increase the level of my promises mm -hmm. so that I become a stretch deliverer, but also a reliable. It's an equation between stretch and reliability is what we're talking about here. Absolutely. But what I'm suggesting is that there actually is a skill element to that. There's a skill element for the giver, of course, but there's also a skill element for the asker because it's not actually in the asker's interest that the giver fails because, I mean, obvious reasons. In most cases, when I'm asking for something, I'm asking for something because I'm also trying to deliver something. Now, that might be, you know, because I'm your boss and I need you to deliver for me to deliver, but it might also be because you and I are colleagues and I need that piece of information from HR that is going to allow me to then make a decision about whether or not I'm going to hire this person or whatever, you know. So it's not in my interest that you don't deliver to me. And I think that's been one of the pieces I've worked really hard on is to have people say, there's two roles, the asker and the giver, but then there's four sets of skills because there's what happens before the promise, which we've talked about, and then there's what happens after the promise. So once once somebody has committed, 
how do both parties then play it to make sure that they do deliver? And that, I wanted to dive into that piece uh, because they each play a really important role once a promise is, is made. So what kind of language or check-ins or documentation should we be using once we have a promise in place so that we can make sure we hold mm. the giver accountable for what they promised? Well, and it's interesting because I know a, num a number of your uh, listeners are from HR. And so there's a sub-question in that, which is what role does HR play? Because HR will often um, have a part in many of much of the documentation of what is often a promise in fact that is between the line person and their subordinate so that becomes an interesting piece around that my experience on a personal level is that there is a judgment call that you have to make about the person involved and what you've asked for so clearly there is a role in following up without any question right. how much follow-up and what form of follow-up i think depends on you know brandon have have i been involved with you for two years and I have I watched you deliver or not no you know we, you and I don't know each other that well so therefore I don't know as well whether or not I'm going to need to follow up or not you know whereas somebody else I know I can think of certain people who are always a bit vague and what they say and therefore one has to follow up more so follow up is one element you also talked about our documentation and I do think that some confirmation should we say of what was agreed becomes important at the point of the promise. Now, whether it's can I count on you? Yes, I can count on you. So that so there's no way later that we can come back and say, well, I didn't really promise that, you know, because that, of course, is where often people will go. And I think that clarity is important to get up front because what will then come up is what happens when things start to go wrong, as often they do, mm -hmm. and how quickly does each giver resort to justification and blame mm -hmm. as distinct from personal responsibility? So let's say that the classic one, which would be, oh, well, the competition has put their prices down. Okay, so now the sales budget is at risk. Now, you could argue that that is a very justifiable reason why now I'm not going to deliver. But when you hear justifications like that, because it's true, it's probably true that the competition did put their price down. But of course, the other language is, I have not been able to find a way of positioning our product and its value high enough that I can compensate for the lower price of the competition. So that's a big language issue, right? which is the difference between personal responsibility and blame and justification. I call it above and below the line in the book. I'll go into more detail on that there. So that's one piece. And then the other side, I think, from the asker, the big question is how quickly do I settle for an excuse? How easily do I let someone off the hook? Because I think if we've had this very open dialogue at the front end before a promise, and we've been in active negotiation and there's been real conversation and there is that moment where you do give me your word, then I think that the asker then has a whole lot more right to be demanding on the back end after the promise. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways of doing that is just simply holding one's ground. 
Because if you come back to me and say, well, you know, competition's put the price down or all the many millions of other reasons that we give, you know, the unions didn't allow us to do this or my boss left. The question always is, the great word to use is given that. So given the prices went down, given the unions have objected, given that, you know, there's just been a restructure and you've lost your boss, or what, what are you doing? What can you do to still deliver? And that, I think, should always be the first question. Yeah. And what if the answer is no, I can't deliver anymore? Then what? Well, then you, you know, obviously you keep going and yeah, well, you know, I'm not going to accept that right now. Why don't you go off and try a bit longer and try for longer? And you know, so there's a question for me about how long the ask could hold that discomfort. Right. So there is a moment of discomfort where the giver is saying, I can't do it. And the asker doesn't want to give up hope yet. And so will perhaps sit with that tension. And only you can really judge what that moment is because sometimes within that tension comes creativity and the creativity is the solution that perhaps wouldn't have been thought about if you'd succumbed immediately and said, okay, all right. Yeah, exactly. I also think that's how people build a great reputation too. Like when there are challenges, when a promise is, is made and it's like, oh, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deliver, but then there's this creative aspect of the giver that might succeed and and deliver, and then that person can develop a great reputation in, in the end, I would think. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, you know, the other possibility is that you might always, in the end, come back with, I feel like, a renegotiation. I mean, at some point, we might then sit down, but ideally not wait until the end of the promise period, but somewhere earlier on to say, you know, this is really looking tough, and you may mutually agree that you need to renegotiate. So I think the other way that the giver keeps their honor is by making sure that they are at least raising when that happens and raising it early. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. I mean, I think from the point of view of building this trusting relationship, which I've said I think is at the heart of it all, the more those conversations happen and happen openly, the more likely the reputation is maintained and the next time the two of you go into that commitment conversation, if you like, there's learning. There's learning that happens on the way through. There's so much time spent on what are going to be the consequences. And so much of our HR is spent on what, you know, what's the reward, what's the bonus, what's the penalty, mm-hmm. are we going to exit people, all that. I'm saying let's spend much more time, one, on the front end, but two, then on the way through of keeping the conversation going and going in a constructive way so that if it does come at the end not to be fulfilled, there's more of a sense that everything was tried, every stone was unturned. The last stage of your accountability process is the outcome stage. How much time should people spend in that stage reflecting on whether the promise was kept or not and, and what you know what happens during that stage? Well, of course, people will immediately come in with the word consequence. Uh, unfortunately, the word consequence has now got an almost guaranteed negative connotation. It does. That's um, what comes to mind for me, but it, it should be positive as well. I, I know. I mean, in fact, I think it is, a, it is a neutral word, but it's now, I have to assume that it's not. But let's look at the positive, first of all. Uh, I do think it's really important to acknowledge a promise made. If nothing else, by thanks, I know you said you'd get it done by this moment. You did. It must have been tough to do it. Thank you. But also, on the other hand, certainly with customers, I think there's a technique which says, I promised I would get this to you by the end of the month, and here we are on the 30th, and here it is. 
And so there's just that little thing of reminding your askers, whether they're customers, but also internally, you know, reminding people that you're someone who keeps their word. So there's some really great stuff that can be done on the positive side. I think it's an important, you know, we all have inside that little achievement motivation where we want to know that we've succeeded at something. It's the reason we love lists, right? You all have lists and we like to cross off the list. That little, you know, that little thrill you get inside. Oh, it feels so good. So that's, yeah, it's what David McClellan called the achievement motivation in the work he did on motivation. So I think feeding that matters. So that's the positive side. Now, the less positive side, of course, is the first place is what have we learned? The postmortem of some sort. You know, what, what did we learn from this? What have we learned? Did we get the initial promise wrong? Did we spend enough time? Did we do the risk anticipation or I, and whether it's the asker or the giver or both? I think going through these four stages before, after the promise, the giver role, the asker role, to really go, what can I learn? How can we make any relationship between the two of us next time result in higher reliability? Because that's good for my reputation. It's good for your reputation. What I find so fascinating about this, I mean, this is a really micro level interaction between two individuals. And you know, what I talk about a lot on this podcast is like, how do we transform the culture? So everybody's doing this. And it does seem to me like, if you had a a four step process, just like you're describing here, and people were following it and following through with it, that you could literally make transformation within a culture. Yes. Well, one of I think the most powerful techniques to help change a culture is to get ritual. I mean, that's what this is in a sense. I mean, it's, it's, it's a ritual with a lot of complexity sometimes and a lot of skill, but it ultimately is a ritual. Can I count on you? You can count on me is a ritualistic exchange between the two of us. And so one technique for changing culture is to put rituals in place and train people to use them. I mean, that's what, um, you know, for example, some of the qualities, some of the agile technique, you know, techniques are, I mean, they're rituals, they're techniques that people use that are causing people to behave in different ways. So absolutely, the book contains that and it will make, I like to call an achievement culture, which is organizations who make and keep their promises more frequently it starts with individuals making and keeping their promises more frequently and learning what that means and learning the difference between in promise and intention and learning how to get it back on track. So yes, it's a it's a how-to book. It's a it's a very practical book as as you've seen. It's a it's not a great tome. It's maybe 80, 90 pages. It's perfect. But the idea is it contains techniques. I know these days, that's what some of people have said that actually, because my last book, my last book was like this big tome on how you change culture. And and this one is much more Let's just take one topic and go deeply on it because I do. I think it's doable that people can make that difference. Yeah. Carolyn, I appreciated your book. I appreciated this discussion. It was so enlightening. I, I love this process. Where can people learn more about your work? Uh, you've got a previous book called Walking the Talk. You've got this book. Uh, what other work are you up to? Feel free to share anything that you're, you're doing. Okay, thank you. Well, this book, uh, Accountability at Work, is uh, launching in April. It's probably will just about launch when this um, podcast comes out. It's available, obviously, on Amazon. Um, so that would be the place to get that. And also my other book, Walking the Talk, which is a much more substantial tome, as we now call it, on how, how to change a culture. And from that, then, I um, am the chairman of an organization called Walking the Talk, because uh, it was a good brand name, and so we stuck with it. it. And um, we consult with organizations on how to take an element of their culture 
and create a change in it. So one of the tricks to changing a culture is not trying to boil the ocean, not trying to do everything, but to pick one element. And this one element is what would it be like if your organization made and kept its promises at the organization, team, individual level? What does that look like? So you can contact me on LinkedIn, of course. Carolyn Taylor Culture will normally find me because there are other Carolyn Taylors. Walkingthetalk.com will get you into the organization and Amazon will get you into the book. Carolyn Taylor, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me for this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me.